Okay, go. gentlemen, we are live. Hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, to the point. I'm Ed Mullins. With me is Bill Cannon and Mike Salone, president of Seattle PBA. He represents uh, law enforcement that's pretty much under siege in the city of Seattle. Um, everybody that's watching here from New York knows that NYPD is under siege. The city is lost. Um, we have a mayor, De Blasio, that um, between him and city council, they continue to implement policies that are just, you know, ripping forward the uh, the crime. As you see today's daily uh, New York Post headline, Bell Tolls for New York, uh, quality of life is plummeting, taxes skyrocketing. In the last 24 hours, we've had 23 shootings across the city. And Daily News is on it, but you can't say it's just one newspaper. Um, it's really out of control. And what we would like to do is explain to all of you is what's occurring in law enforcement across America, what's you know occurring here in New York City, and and Mike, who's representing Seattle, um, you just finished off last summer with a, a summer of love, according to uh, you know your mayor after um, you know six blocks being seized. So Mike, what I'd like to do is. Um, you know, to set the stage, if you recall, you and I had a conversation about a day and a half after those six blocks were captured by Antifa and a lot of other radicals who were not peaceful protesters. And you had called me, if I remember correctly, and we were looking to make contact with Fox News because no one knew that six blocks in Seattle had been seized. And I know when I spoke to you and you told me the story, I asked you to repeat it again because I had a tough time understanding that this is exactly what happened. Um, the city of Seattle surrendered six square blocks to what I'll, I'll call the domestic terrorists. And there's been a huge fallout um, you know, on the police, but from the politicians and the business owners. And what I'd like to know now is you know, how is this affecting policing in the city of Seattle. And, you know, feel free to just tell us what happened back in June of 2020. Yeah, well, it's it's definitely been devastating. And uh, Ed, thanks for having me on podcast. I look up to you guys in terms of being the voice of policing because you do such a good job with your membership and your message. Um, and you call it the way it is. And I think that's what we're missing in leadership and law enforcement. And, you know, I'll probably go off on a tangent here and I know we got a long time, but we got time. I, get, I just want to get this off. It's that, you know, our political leaders are controlling our administrations in policing and they dictate what narrative gets put out there. And I think that's why they come after police unions, because we are essentially the only voice left that can paint the picture much like what you just described, how many people actually knew that a U.S. major urban city lost six square city blocks to domestic terrorists? Um, and Fox News, which is just hated in Seattle, because, you know, ultimately we, we are in a progressive city. Um, and people think that Fox News is attached to solely the right-wing narrative. Well, in reality, perhaps that's politics at play via Fox News showing 
what's occurred in a Democrat-run run, uh, leftist city, maybe they have an advantage there too, which fits their narrative. But to my point, no other major media outlet in terms of the mainstream media highlighted the fall of six square city blocks to domestic terrorists. And I was actually just pulling my hair out and I had just taken over this role as the union head. And, um, and I, I looked out to you for some guidance of, to get some context because I was desperate to get a narrative out there. And the reason why this occurred is because of, I call them unreasonable activists, but let's be clear. These, I mean, these were anti-government, anti-fascist, antifa, black bloc people that were bent on destroying the current governmental system. And they were using the George Floyd unrest to their political gain. And police, we weren't allowed to do our jobs. We would clear the intersection trying to protect the East Precinct, we'd push this crowd back maybe a couple hundred yards, and then we would give the ground back again. And this was night in and night out. And typically this occurred during the night because the peaceful protesters would show up during the day. And every once in a while, some of the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, the activists, the domestic terrorists would, would throw something at us. But it really didn't break off until at night. Mike, I'm going to show a little bit of a video, and uh, you can comment on this. Um, yeah, that's something. We That's when they stole the rifles out of our patrol cars. You can't tell me these were peaceful protesters. We fully support the rightful assembly and peaceful protest, but we will not support violence against our community, in particular the officers on the front lines, because what's happening is there, there's a faction of anarchists who are tragically stealing the peaceful protesters' message against police officers right now. Good evening. Yeah, that's something that, thank you. It's something we put together and then we had just throughout the course of that six months to eight months and, you know, we were just, we were just hammered. By you know, Mike, one, one of the reasons that this is so disturbing to police is because the number one job of government is public safety and then not protecting the public and then not allowing the police to do their jobs to protect the public. And as right now, I'm, I'm a retired member of the service so I'm a member of the public. That's disturbing to me that myself, my wife, my kids aren't going to be protected because politicians have decided they're not going to let the police do their job. Yeah, and that's what that maybe that's the, what they want to have happen. My decision was it to allow this to occur. 
Well, we follow chain of command orders, and I believe that came from City Hall all the way down to the chief of police. And I was having conversations behind the scenes to say, listen, you're ordering us to be on this line, protect this facility. And yet when we push these people out, we're not being supported by our political leaders, i.e. the city council, who are blaming us for the violence and causing this unrest. Meanwhile, I've got officers that I represent with career-ending injuries being hit with improvised explosive devices night in and night out. They weren't allowing us to arrest people. So we, we, like, like we, we would push them back via chemical munitions, but then they would give, we'd give back the ground. So we, we had no political support. And at some point, they just, they just basically took a knee and said, we can't hold this ground anymore. It's because we want to de-escalate. So they gave up the precinct. That's the reason why the precinct was abandoned, because they just chose to allow the violence and the attacks to occur? Yeah, because we, they, wanted, they wanted to remove the flashpoint. And this is all centralized around this whole de-escalation movement. Well, de-escalation, you know, like I just asked whose decision, and, and I agree, it probably is political, came down through the chiefs. But one of the things that we intend to do as we do this show is to name the chiefs, to name the political officials who are doing this, because the public does not know how this happened. And at the end of the day, we continue to blame the police officer, the, the working men and women that are in the street for something that happened, because that's what the public sees. What they don't understand is these are the orders that have been given. And in many cases, um, you know, your chief at the time, Carmen Best, um, she said there's no cop-free zones. That video we just looked at is a cop-free zone. And for her to say that, she's lying. She, she's actually lying to say there's no cop-free zones. You guys were not allowed to go into that. And she's not admitting to, to that being a cop-free zone. Um, they need to be held accountable, and the public needs to know that. And one of the things that, as police unions, that these chiefs, including our own police commissioner right here, he, he's good for about another eight months, and he will look to go get a nice high-paying job someplace. We need to cut those jobs off. We need to explain to private corporations how incompetent these chiefs and these commissioners are. And I, I do think that the unions across the country need to take a stronger role in getting that voice out there. Yeah, and I think we have, as far in terms of Seattle, taken a stronger role in getting a message out there. That's why I think um, since I launched the podcast, Hold the Line, um, I've seen just, I've been inundated with just what I call just crazy scrutiny by the crazy activist crowd I've been lit up on social media. They've come after me just speaking the truth. And it just shows that they do not want a counter narrative out there that highlights what's occurred. And, you know, like to your point, Ed, we follow chain of command orders. And if we do anything outside the scope of those orders, then what ends up, what, what happens to us? Insubordination, you get put up on charges, right? So, you know, the, the abandonment of the East Precinct, I think in the beginning, Carmen was absolutely against it. In fact, she was saying that we hold these facilities against uh, all odds. But at that point, that message gets, you know, diluted because of the political pressure. And at some point, that decision was made to abandon that facility. 
and then thus we abandoned six square blocks of a major urban city to domestic terrorists. And then what ends up happening in those in that territory? Cops aren't allowed to go in, and then who ends up getting hurt the most? Usually minority community members that, in fact, there were five major violent crimes within that CHOP area, and 100% of them were African-American victims. I believe one African-American male died, if I'm correct in that. Didn't, yes, didn't absolutely. He, he all died, and, and his father was interviewed. Uh, I believe it was on Fox News. No one else talked about that. No. Mike, this is on the screen. This is showing the attack on the police precinct where they set it on fire. Yeah, this is the East Precinct when we actually got the building back, and then they're trying to burn cops alive who are inside. Isn't isn't arson a very serious crime? Yes. So, you know, how the politicians allow that to happen? Well, yeah, we don't have DAs that won't prosecute it, and that's another problem. Yeah, that's the problem, right? Is that, you know, and this is our union hall being scouted by these two domestic terrorists who minutes later then firebombed our, uh, our building. So, I mean, this is another move on our part to get the message out there, right? Um, we've been referred to as copaganda, right? I mean, we, you know, they, they just try to throw shade as much as possible. But the reality, this is real. These are facts. And this is a PR war. That's what this is. And that war is being waged locally, but nationally too. And if you don't have the media putting forth a neutral message. Criminal actors conducting acts of domestic terrorism are bent on killing police officers and destroying private and public property. Enough is enough. Councilmember Herbold, weigh in publicly and condemn these criminal actions. Seattle deserves public safety. Yeah, and so to, even to today, no elected official has come on record to show concern for the officers who have been injured. We're talking hundreds of officers, many of them with career-ending injuries. One of the problems we're seeing is that these elected officials believe that this squeaky wheel is the majority of the voting base, and it's not. What we're dealing with is asylum majority that's too busy going to work with their jobs and focused on their families, that they sit silent while this is happening. What people need to realize is that once they get past the police, they become the true victim with no one there to help them. And we're seeing this in New York. Uh, the, the shootings that are occurring on a daily basis are, are astronomical. And who's being shot? Young African-Americans. I don't see Black Lives Matter coming down here protesting anybody trying to save lives. It's just not happening. Who is speaking for the, these young African-Americans that are being killed? Are the police. That's the voice that's speaking for them and dealing with the families, and, you know, after their murder has been committed. And Billy, you wanted one of the, 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 you know, sergeants and detectives that did this for years. Um, there, there's no protest for these murders. We still have a one-year-old child who was murdered in Brooklyn. It's an unsolved case. And, and this just happened last summer. So who's speaking up? No one is. And it's the uh, elected officials that have been allowed to get away with this. Um, you're, you're mayor. What's the consensus with police officers and the relationship between Mayor Jenny Durkin? Uh, well, that relationship? Well, it's unfortunate. Um, it's not good. Um, she called me several months ago dishonest. And um, what would I call it? Uh, something about related to my character not being good. 
Uh, that's because of a tweet I put out from an actual fact of a suspect in the Capitol Hill um, riot in D.C. on January 6th, who, what was, who was counter to what the mainstream media was putting out as far as who was responsible for that day. And I just retweeted and compared that police are caught between two factions of, of, of entities looking for political control. And the FBI charged that individual, but I was called dishonest for tweeting that out. Well, that's her method of trying to silence you. I deal with that here. You know, we have our own internal affairs bureau that's probably watching. So I'm going to say hello to Chief Resnick, who uh, just refuses to move on with his life. And um, I commit to your mayor, um, who is pretty much attempting to become one of the people is a little bit dishonest herself. I mean, she, she comes from a pretty um, lucrative background. You know, she went to law schools, she grew up privileged, and um, you know, now all of a sudden she's sitting here trying to balance the playing field, pretending to be related to other people. And that's just not the case. And is another opportunity to start to expose some of these politicians. They speak like they've walked in the shoes of poor people, and yet they have not. Um, you know. From her own website, she's a graduate of Notre Dame University. So, you know, you know, Ed, to your point, just days before George Floyd occurred in Minneapolis, Minnesota, cops were heroes. Cops were heroes, especially in Seattle, when our mayor and the president of our city council, who's running for mayor, mind you, right now, they publicly applauded our agency as being their model agency of reform. This is just days before George Floyd. Right. They put out a PR campaign. They hit the media. They made this big thing to terminate the settlement agreement between the Department of Justice and the city of Seattle, that we met all these benchmarks. Seattle PD officers are the best trained, most reformed, most diverse, most progressive police agency. And yet, George Floyd happens just days later, and they can't run away fast enough from us. And if I believe if anybody in that political arena had an ounce of, I would say, leadership that if they truly believe that that police agency was their model of reform, where we did all this work, that is the that is the example of what the Department of Justice views as a reformed agency in the 21st century, then we would not have had to experience what we experienced in Seattle. You know, Mike, one of the things that we're seeing in New York, and we could be the next Seattle. New York could really be the next Seattle. But what we're seeing is something called decarceration. And what that is, and it, they use bail reform to achieve it. They're releasing, they're trying to empty the prisons and the jails. So almost anything is legal these days in New York City. There was a kid arrested for a gun five times in the last year. And every single time he gets bailed out. That's a dangerous individual. They took the tool of theft of service, which people were arrested for, for jumping the turnstile of the subway, which gives the officer search incidental to lawful arrest, which recovers a lot of firearms. Everywhere you look, they're taking the tools away from the police because of this goal of decarceration. In New York City, they want to empty Rikers Island because it's a big real estate deal. So there's some corruption behind a lot of this stuff too. Well, if you look at even before George Floyd riots, this was a move due to COVID, a nationwide movement. And guess who was leading the charge? It's groups such as Public Defenders Association, ACLU, particularly here in Washington State, they wanted to rem they wanted to release close to 15,000 inmates.
because of COVID issues. For public safety, that is an absolute nightmare for the reasonable people out there that just want to go about their lives and don't want to immerse themselves in politics in terms of public safety. And that's the problem. These institutions have become politicized to the point where every one of us, our interests are not being met by our elected officials. And so what's our recourse? And Ed, you and I talked right before we kicked off here. It's like, perhaps this is, this, this is going to devolve to a point where there's a reset. And, you know, police unions are the only entity left to highlight this situation. And then they're trying to cancel us. You know, Mike, I'm going back into the 80s here in New York. Um, what we're seeing today is what we saw back in the early 80s, late 70s in New York City. And it got to a breaking point. It was actually when Mayor Giuliani came in that people had enough. And there was an incident with a, a young um, you know, male that was here visiting from, I believe it was Utah, the U.S. Open, Brian Watkins, who was murdered on a subway platform defending his mother in a robbery. A uh, knife was stuck in his chest. That was a turning point for taking the streets back. Um, just recently, the city of Chicago is banning foot pursuits because one of their officers was involved in a shooting. And I believe, I, don't, I haven't had the whole story, so some of the facts may be off, but is banning foot pursuits of police officers because the male that he was chasing somewhere in the teens was shot. But people forget back here in New York, we had a young teen named Willie Bossett who was running the subways and in the streets murdering people. And they changed the juvenile laws as a result of it. I, I think it's going to take a lot longer today than it did years ago to get that public sentiment back because most of the hardworking people, the business people, and the people that you know really have a stake in the city have moved out. They, you, know, you can have a job in New York and still work from home. So you can live in Nebraska and keep the job in New York. That's you know, Ed, that's a good point because – even though shootings and homicides, I think shootings are up like 90-something percent. Homicides are up like 36 percent. Right. But the rest of the seven majors haven't necessarily saw the same rise because there's not enough people right. out there to be victims. But once the people come back into the city, crime's going to be out of control. Right. It's going to skyrocket. And we're seeing it. We're seeing little dribs of the violence. But where we're seeing them is in the black and brown communities. Now, you know, our police commissioner uh, disbanded our anti-crime unit, and it was made public. Um, we have a, a, a diaphragm bill that was implemented by city council that really prohibits NYPD cops from trying to wrestle with somebody in fear that they may be arrested or indicted. Um, they just took away qualified immunity of New York City, you know, police officers. But everyone else has it. The DAs have it. The elected officials have it, and they took it away from police officers. So you want us to go out and, you know, protect the streets and defend people. But if we do anything wrong, any appearance of doing anything wrong, you leave us to be arrested, um, sued, and pretty much on your own. And my advice to every police officer that's watching is you got to take care of yourself and your family first. And if that means just taking the report, and referring it to the detective squad, then that's your job. We need to change the way that we police 
in order for the public to say, we don't want this. We want the police to be there to protect us and let this happen because the elected officials are just sending us out there, you know, waiting to indict us. We're not the bad guy. I, I had, you know, and then at the same time, they've released all these mentally ill people correct. who are now living on the street and in the subways, and people are afraid to take the subways. And New York City subways are horrific, and the city of Seattle has a major homeless crisis going on. I mean, you guys have spent close to a billion dollars on dealing with homeless, and I'm sure that the chilling effect to, you know, the de-escalation of police, the defunding, what's transpired in you know, the summer of love with your mayor to what your officers are allowed to do. I mean, your, your, your crime rate is increasing, I'm sure. Yeah, the crime rate's definitely up. So is homicides. That's That was the biggest thing in 2020. And we saw almost a 60% jump in homicides. Um, and, you know, all that stuff is publicly available, but it's obviously not vocalized to the degree that it, that, that it can be. And our homeless crisis is out of control. Um, I you know I live in the city. And, uh, you know, just the Seattle Public Schools, you know, they don't want the homeless uh, encampments cleared from Seattle school properties by the police. They want to just offer uh, services. And it's like at some point here, we need to we need to start adhering to the reasonable Seattle community so to, so so they can be heard. But right now we haven't reached a point where that reasonable crowd that exist in Seattle, they have yet to be truly impacted at their doorstep. And I think once they are impacted at their doorstep, then we'll start to see a turnaround. And I think, Bill, to your point, I mean, at some point, in just reading the threads here, it will turn around. But I, I would ask you guys right now, maybe you can weigh in. What's the end game to these politicians with removing police and blaming police for all of this? What's the end game? I think they intend to keep blaming the police. And when crime goes up, they're going to continue to blame the police till, uh, as Ed said, someone starts pointing the finger their way and realizes that, no, they are the cause of the rise in crime because they've hampered the police from doing their job. Yeah. But they'll switch their opinion. But they'll, they'll come out and say the police aren't doing their job. We need to get them tools to do their job. And they will pretend like it never happened because they will get the media to tell their story. Right now, the media is not telling their story. And, you know, right, this is a small town, not too far from New York City, where the police department has asked their mayor for rifles for their vehicles. And they've been denied. This is absolutely no rifles. So, what's the ramifications of that? If we have an active school shooter that happens to be in the school, with uh, an AR-15, are we now telling our police officers, wait until the proper equipment arrives? How many children are going to be murdered? You know, how long is that going to take? We saw it took place in Florida when they completely destroyed a, a police officer responding to a shooting down in Florida who they said didn't respond properly. I, I wasn't there. I don't know. But you want all of us to wait because you don't give us the equipment to go in? No, active shootings have become common across the nation. And well, you know, Ed, the, the thing that the politicians love to hang their hat on is that, oh, the cops need more training. But you and I know they don't mean that. They, they just like to say that because they, they know that training costs money 
And to send cops to training takes them off the road. So they don't mean that. And look, we know that because in the summer, they, uh, the Department of Investigation and the state attorney general wrote extensive reports on the NYPD's response to what they called demonstrations. We call riots. And that one of their recommendations was, oh, they need more training. They have all the training. You won't let them do their job. That's the problem. And our department said, we're going to adhere to the recommendations. Well, we still haven't seen any changes. And the people that were responsible for that, Chief Monahan, who was responsible for the breakdown of enforcement during these riots and protests, well, he was just rewarded with another city job. So they were all in bed together, but the public's not paying attention. And this is going to continue. They don't want to spend the money on training. Cops love the training if, if we, you'll give it to us, but you won't give it to us. You know, we always form a commission when they want to do a study on something where they need a political answer. And we always refer to training when there's a breakdown and they need a political answer. But they don't spend the time. The public needs to know how often we actually fire our weapons, how much training we get, how much tactic training we get. Uh, New York City's had a couple of friendly fire incidents. Why? Well, you know, we can't judge that, but we didn't get the tactical training that everybody thinks we do. You know, Ed, I just want to welcome some of the people in the chat. Uh, Bill Pepitone, a Republican candidate for mayor, is in the chat. Uh, attorney Joseph Murray, a friend of the show and a great, great guy. Oscar Ferrafino, retired sergeant from Homicide, Queens Homicide. And the, the Pranzos, uh, the best couple, uh, you know, Lieutenant Pete Pranzo and his wife, Richella, they're around all the time. They're on every these podcasts. Cheated No More, uh, Peter Lavin, Dr. Stephen Washkill who is an expert on suicide prevention. And we just had our first member of the service suicide the other night, and that's always been a big topic. And I know, Ed, it's a big thing on your mind. Yeah, uh, problem we're all dealing with, right? Sleeping Beauty, uh, Princess M Mitch, Charina Diudo. Just I want to thank all you people for listening. Mike, sorry, I have to shout out to our fans here, but uh, I'm sure you had the same thing with your podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not as... Uh... I mean, we just started. We got eight, eight episodes in, and uh, we're growing. And uh, I think just looking at the threads, platforms like this are so needed now because we don't really have a voice, especially with just the media controlling the narrative. I ran on a platform for this position to drive our narrative, tell our story, because I saw what was happening. And then now that's more prevalent uh, than ever. So we got to keep going. You know, you think about it, right after George Floyd, police shows, you know, the show Cops was banned from TV. I mean, they did not want anything to do. So we were silenced by just what we do on a daily basis. It was around, that's a show that's been around for like 30 years, but the networks silenced it. The news media does not tell all the good stories. Uh, we, we don't get that voice. And, you know, these platforms are going to have to be the voice. And we need to get law enforcement across the country to speak up, get involved, and to really tell the truth about what's going on behind the scenes. Mike, if I could ask you a question, and this is baffles me, because I've heard some politicians say that Antifa is just an idea. Uh, they don't really exist. But my thing is I 100% know that they do exist. And I want to know why has there not been a better investigative component to identifying who these people are and where do they, let's infiltrate them. 
Where do they group? Where do they organize? And I've heard we had a writer on our show insist to me that they weren't organized, and I find that to be ridiculous because they all know where to meet, where to gather. They're sometimes renting buses. Sometimes they're leaving pallets of bricks. Where are these people? Why is there not a better investigative component to this? Well, you know what? I had a guest on my podcast, Andy No, who has basically focused on your question. And he just wrote a book, Unmasked, that I think people should read. And it, and it really highlights who Antifa are, how they're financed, and how well organized they are. And they're the ones that are solely responsible for the unrest that occurred throughout the summer, particularly in Portland and Seattle. Then we saw it in Wisconsin. We definitely saw it in, uh, in Minnesota. And it's this group that is extremely well organized that there's uh, aspects of it in a lot of the major, major urban areas of our nation. And evidence of that is, geez, you can go on our YouTube channel, but more importantly, you can read the unmasked book. I'll do a plug for Andy because I think he's an impeccable journalist. But if you look at how media represents him, They'll claim that he's alt-right or fringe, but he gets the scoop on a lot of this, and he basically called for called out what it was, and and uh, more people that were involved in the D.C. unrest. And when I retweeted that, they came after me hard. So I mean, it's just they don't want an alternative me- uh, narrative out there, and it's Antifa and Black Bloc are the ones that are destroying Seattle and Portland. Mike, let me ask you this question: Is you know we're all watching the Floyd trial? In, in Minneapolis and with all this defunding of police. I mean, here in New York, it's almost a coin toss of cops are gonna go out with their helmets. Um, you know, tear gas, we're, we're not allowed to use. Um, we're really limiting our tactics. And this decision probably can go either way. You just never know. I actually believe the extreme left is hoping for an acquittal just so they could further their agenda. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. None of us were really privy to the facts of the case. Um, we all think we have an idea what's going to happen, but should there be an acquittal in that case? Um, what are you guys being you know, prepared for? Uh, has, has there been any kind of messaging to come down from your chief as to what to do? Um, any limitations on, on equipment? Yeah, that's a great point, Ed. And it's something that the membership, but given the messages that I've I've heard, is that um, they are planning on more civil unrest and riots, and we're you know we watch just like you described. Our agency was banned from using chemical munitions. They're limiting our less lethal tools. The council started that. We did a demand to bargain on it. We did an unfair labor practice on it, um, and then we continue to be met with a revamping of our use of force policies. And what I'm told is we will no longer have any lines. It's going to be a different approach to these riots because they want to de-escalate and not cause a flashpoint. Um, they're talking about different uniforms, oversizing the uniforms to cover up our equipment so we look less intimidating. This is a complete, I think, rewrite of our tactics because they're worried about the civil liability but also, more importantly, is the PR liability that they see as problematic. Everything is the optics world that we live in, and they're governing us via Twitter, and it's the activist class that are pushing the narratives about us that are false, 
and we're left scrambling for um, cover. And they're removing those tools that have been proven. And it's like we've moved forward 30 years with less lethal tools, but yet their decisions are moving us back 30 years that the only thing left are batons, our physical bodies, our fists, and tragically, sometimes our, our, our lethal tools may have to be used to save our lives. So, you know, you know, it's, Mike, it's one orchestrated of the not just in Seattle, but this is nationwide. So Mike, well, I just game. wanted to say that one of the things to me that was the most disturbing to see on national media were the Chicago police getting pelted with rockets and all kinds of fireworks being thrown at them as they stood there helplessly. Like, what was the point of having them there if they were just going to be the punching bag for the demonstrators? Ah, excuse me, the rioters. What was the point of having them there? Well, Bill, you bring up a great point, and that leads me to what we previously talked about. That's what led to the fall of our East Precinct. That's what spawned Chaz Chop. Is what's the point of us being there if you're not going to let us hold it and arrest people? And arrest people? We'll push them back. We'll gain the ground, but then we give ground back to them. And it became this give and take where ultimately our elected officials blamed us and they pulled us off the line. And we lost, we lost a major precinct in this city and we lost six square blocks where people died and normal, reasonable citizens could not get public safety service for them. Three what weeks your, we were under siege. What does your business community say? I mean, those six square blocks had businesses in it. The city is now, you know, suffering with murders, homelessness. Um, how are people doing business? I mean, you know, we had COVID that had an impact, but there's got to be a point where they feel the lack of public safety. Um, what kind of response are we getting from the business community in Seattle? Oh, they're, they're desperate for public safety. They're desperate to be heard. We've seen the Downtown Business Association lately become extremely vocal that they're really concerned about the downtown corridor. As you mentioned, COVID has got a lot of issues to do with this because nobody's downtown. It's an absolute ghost town downtown. Yeah. And it's just inundated with uh, crisis situations and just um, a, a homeless crisis that just has exploded. And they don't know what to do. And I don't think our politicians know what to do either. They're just trying to figure it out, spend more money, and blame the police at the same time. What they really need to do is just enforce the laws. If they enforce the laws, most of what we see on the street would not be there. And, you know, we didn't have that when we did enforce the laws. And this year about, you know, we're going to try different methods. We're, we're about a year now and longer of trying different methods. It's obvious it doesn't work. Uh, and Commissioner Shea disbanded anti-crime. Uh, you know, take a look at your homicide numbers. It's like something correlates to the day you did this to where we are today. And yet you continue to not have anti-crime out there. We continue to change the policies that were very efficient in protecting life. And we just choose to not enforce the laws. And we have district attorneys that will not prosecute. This is not hard to figure out. We've had 25 years of success. And one bad summer followed by another bad winter, um, to me, it, it doesn't balance out. They need to make some changes. Well, you know, Ed, with the qualified immunity, one of the things that they act, actually can be charged with uh, or sued for is a bad search. So right. 
cops pulling guns off the street, and we all know how you get guns off the street, stop, question, and frisk. And if they determine that's one of the things in qualified immunity they can be civilly sued for, though that what you violated this person's rights, that was a bad search. You know, right now, any police officer that's working in the city of New York that is in jeopardy of being questioned under the idea of qualified immunity is out of their mind for doing a search on anyone. It's just not worth getting sued, losing your house, getting fired, possibly even getting arrested. It, it, you have to push this back to the politicians that implement these laws. And they're lying to the public, telling them that this is not what this law means. It's exactly what this law means. We just went over this you know, a week ago with an attorney on a show. And, and we went through the law. They're lying to the public, and they need to be called out. I think, Ed, that they're sorry that they actually passed that from stuff that I'm hearing for on the yeah. inside is that they know that they screwed up, yeah. but I don't know how they can walk that back. You know. Well, the only way you walk anything back is you admit that you screwed up and you fix it. My understanding from what I'm hearing from the people I know working in city council, no one wants to take the blame. No one wants to have the courage to stand up and say this is wrong. I know there's a couple of city council people that will do it, but they can't get the support from everyone else because the the weak-minded individuals there are afraid of getting the backlash from the squeaky wheel. And that's what we're dealing with. Well, you know, I think everyone is looking towards New York City uh, as to see what's going to happen here. Because they just took away qualified immunity from police officers. They want to see what, what goes on, what happens. Because this is the department, you know, basically the number one department in the world that people look towards. And some bad stuff is happening here. So how does that bode for the rest of the country? You want to answer that, Mike? Yeah, I think, you know, there was a bill in our state capital, Olympia, relative to qualified immunity. It's not getting much traction. However, the biggest thing is, is that we got to be cognizant of just Seattle is like, will the department indemnify us if we get into some legal trouble, meaning civilly? And if our accountability system, and we call it the Office of Police Accountability here, if they deem that you violated policies, at some point when the city and the department are looking for some scapegoats, at what point will they not indemnify the officer? therefore exposing them to civil liability. And that's the biggest concern is like majority of cops, 99.9% .9 of them out there want to do the right thing. And we do a difficult job and we expose ourselves legally, not just physically, but legally. But at the same time, due to this activism, we're also exposing ourselves as far as our personal identity is concerned. So we're getting hit from all of these fronts. And the biggest thing is this is just punishment and excuses on behalf of pol politicians looking for cover. And they're going to continue to blame cops. And it's to the point where I go back to what's the end game. Because if you keep this scrutiny on us to the degree that it is, which is absolutely absurd and unreasonable, who in the right mind is going to want to do the job of policing in the future? How are you going to get quality recruits? Therefore, the public safety issues in our major urban areas are just going to continue to devolve. That's my main concern. I've got people that are on the oral boards here, and I'm hearing feedback 
that they're going after individuals that have a almost a social worker mentality where they believe that de-escalation can solve all problems. And my fear is if we hire people in that don't have the proper acumen or the understanding of how dangerous this job is, we're going to get a lot of cops hurt and killed. And therefore, what does that do? It really hurts our community members across our major urban areas that are going to be left holding the bag. I think we're all struggling with recruitment right now. I mean, most people I talk to don't want anything to do with this job. And we're seeing people leaving this job with years of experience just to avoid, you know, falling into the trap. Yeah, you know, it's it's really a problem. And I was going to ask you, Mike, I can't imagine what the morale of the Seattle Police Department must be like as guys with anywhere near what you guys can retire after 20 years. Yeah, we're, uh, it's uh, 25 years of service, 53 years of age where you can draw your pension. So if guys are close to that, they must be sprinting oh. off the job. Yeah, I mean, you know? I ju just in 2020 alone, we had 197 separations. That's historic levels. Now we're close to 250, but we have also have people that are burning their sick time in lieu of retirement because they know what's coming, more riots and unrest, no political support at all, and decimating the ranks of Seattle. Guys, we dwarf to you, right? We, our, our sister city is Boston. They have a less population than Seattle, but they got double the cops. Right now in our union, we're under 1,200 members, first time ever. We're supposed to be around 1,400, and it's continuing to devolve. So we're, we're, we're what? a small microcosm compared to your size and your issues are, 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 are obviously more focused and more prevalent because of your size. But in terms of our position, we're in the same spot, right? And recruiting is a major, major issue. And we have a lot of people bouncing to other agencies where they feel that they have the support. But reality is what's happening in our capital is going to impact them. Same thing in New York. The grass isn't greener. So at some point, people are looking at, like, hey, does this job make sense anymore? I don't know. Doesn't well, you know, so even in New York City, they, um, you know, they, they get, they're now giving 10 points uh, on a department test for people who live in New York City. They clearly don't want the police officer from the suburbs. No. And, they're, you know, the pay isn't that good in New York City. So to, re to recruit these guys, how are you going to get people to live in the city when they cannot afford to live here, you know? And, and the morale, it, 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 they, I think you, we need a college degree now to come on the NYPD. You need a college. You got to have uh, your college. You are not getting the money, as Bill said. And, you know, rents and apartments are skyrocketed here in New York. I mean, right now there's a lot of vacancies because of COVID and the crime. Um, you know, that, that may benefit a young recruit coming forward, but they're still not making that kind of money. Yeah. It, it's a problem. People do not, and we lost a lot of the recruitment from our own members. It, it, it was very common over the years, and I'm doing this a very long time, that we would run into members who had family members or the kid next door, you tell them, take the test, become a cop. Now we're telling them, don't take the test. Don't become the cop. You know, you don't want to be a cop in New York. I just had this conversation a couple of days ago with, you know, a 25-year-old guy who was thinking of becoming an NYPD cop. I talked him out of it. So go be a New Jersey trooper. It's a better job. 
This is what we're doing. It's terrible, but that's that's the effects of what these politicians are doing. Yeah, Mike, I want to just show a short video of your council member, Lisa Herbold. Yeah. Uh, we'll see what she has to say here. Um, the, um, um, the... the city council is panicking and has postponed the vote to defund the Seattle police until August 10th. Now more than ever, the Seattle police need your help. Go to StopDefunding.com and add your name to the growing list of citizens who support the Seattle police. Send a message to the city council that says no to defunding the police and yes to public safety. We are preparing the ground for a different kind of society, a socialist world. Before it really is too late. Yeah, that was a, that was a campaign we ran against our council who were looking to defund us by 50%. Obviously, you guys got hit pretty significantly. But that campaign, StopTheFunny.com, which is still going on, uh, we got a lot of good feedback across the nation, 200,000 people. I think, it, I think it impacted the council to walk back a lot of their crazy rhetoric, and they got it down to about 18% defund. And it was, a, it was a money grab put to other activist groups, um, another cop-blaming agenda that um, we just we, we talk about recruiting and retention. They're looking to cancel cops at the same time, continue to try to defund us, where they just made a $5 million cut uh, two weeks ago, but they're deferring it to the federal oversight judge just to give themselves political cover because they're starting to get some significant pushback from the reasonable Seattle community. Mike, uh, someone just asked a very good question in the chat. Did the Seattle PD request state police and feds assistance during riots, and did they get much of a response? Well, it's my understanding that we continue to work with the feds on a daily basis. They've been here for years. As far as a formal request, I have to put that on the chiefs. We did see the National Guard come in, obviously do these riots, but I'm on record asking for this. But when I asked it, of course, they used it against me, and they said I was calling for troops, all that stuff. No, I was asking for help begging for the feds to come in here and essentially save us because we were getting hammered. We were losing people every day. I mean, guys, we were hit with crazy explosives, frozen water bottles, metal objects, slingshots. I mean, it was absolutely off the cuff. Even here at the Union Hall, what was it September? We had a major, major riot here where a lot of the cops were just pulverized. Some of them got shrapnel. And so I'm almost like, if, if, if our politicians, is particularly what Ed said, the people that we arrest need to be charged. Well, they weren't being charged. We'd arrest them and then they would just kick them loose. So we were, we were dealing with the same crowd of people and cops were left holding the bag, career-ending uh, injuries. <laughs> we're still all alone. Mike, for the record, I watched that interview where you did ask for federal law enforcement. It wasn't for troops. Um, you know, right. I saw it on TV. Um, you know, you're 100% correct in what you're saying. Um, that being said, uh, you know, for a question by both of you, we just witnessed an elected official talking about a movement towards socialism. Do you think that what we're seeing, this agenda, is part of the plan to move the country toward a socialist government? Well, I definitely think that the unrest is particularly the Antifa side of things these riots over the summer, the upcoming riots, I think is a, is, is a political method to change the government control in this city, and particularly across the nation. 
That's what all that was for. And if you look at what's happening with the Socialist City Council in the city of Seattle, who I think Bill had her, uh, one of our ads that, that, that focused on her calling for a socialist world, she's being recalled right now, and it's going to go up to the uh, Seattle electorate to recall her. Good. And I think people are understanding that that type of political activity is detrimental to the reasonable people that are just mostly moderate that just want to be left alone. And I think if we go too far to either political ideology, where it's Democrat or Republican, then we all suffer. we got to find some way in the middle where we used to be for the reasonable people to say, you know what, we've gone way too far on either extreme, more so on the left side now, that uh, are the cause of all this unrest in our urban cities, and cops are left holding the bag and still being blamed on false narratives. Well, Mike, it's also the idea of a lot of progressives to take a lot of police duties away from the police and give them to social workers. For example, responding to what we refer to as EDPs, emotionally yeah. disturbed persons. They want social workers to respond to them now. And I don't know how they have the crystal ball to determine when an EDP is not violent. Because I did 27 years as a cop, and I definitely couldn't, I didn't have a crystal ball that told me, oh, this is a, a gentle EDP as opposed to a violent EDP. Yeah, you know, Bill, I would just have to politically correct you on your speech as you would be chastised in Seattle if you said EDP. <laughs> it, it, please, please correct it. It has to be a, a person in crisis. <laughs> you know what they used to call them? Psychos. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it's the same play here in Seattle where they want social workers to handle it. But... What they don't tell you is that Seattle basically built a crisis health team, if you will, crisis management, crisis response team to deal with people in crisis. And this is going back well over 10 years. But all of a sudden, this brand new thing is we don't want armed police handling these kind of uh, calls with people in crisis. So they're going to send social workers out. But just like we had, we had a social worker fatally... Uh, uh, believe stabbed to death not too long ago dealing with somebody in crisis and at some point they're going to have to still call the cops fine if you want to hold us back and wait gladly give it to somebody else as long as that's still our body of work but if you got a better way of doing it please let us know and we'll modulate our tactics but at the end of the day you're still going to have to call us you know one of the reasons that the police respond to aided cases in new york is that years ago, the EMTs and paramedics were being assaulted. And we're seeing a wave of that across the city now. So we already have a first responder who's there to give medical attention is being assaulted. And we're going to send in social workers to address these same situations to have more people get assaulted to do what? Eventually call the police. And we had a serial killer running around a subway for a weekend I think he killed four people in the course of the weekend. Is that a job that we should be sending more social workers into the subway? I mean, is that what this comes down to? People are just missing a vote on this. You know, yeah, Ed, it, the, the lunacy is connected to wokeness because they're also, they also pay gangbangers not to be violent. Right. We're going to give you guys money, but don't kill each other. I don't know who came up with that idea, what part of their brain they got that from, but it just, it just is, it's pathetic and it's ridiculous. Look, at the end of the day, you know, New York City 
we have Mayor de Blasio, probably one of the most dysfunctional mayors in the country. And if it wasn't his idea, he certainly has the ability to not let it happen. So he lets it happen. I mean, if you go back, you know, a couple of years, we were giving Dunkin' Donut cards and phone cards to inmates um, just just so that they'd be able to get out of jail and, you know, have transportation home. Like, so we're rewarding people who are in, you know, Rikers Island in criminal facilities. And meanwhile, we have hardworking people trying to survive every day that we just disregard. It makes no sense. But these are the policies that we're seeing from this extreme left. Yeah, and they couldn't uh, even give away those Met tickets either. No, <laughs> even no, criminals I, didn't want those tickets. <laughs> Ed, if I can ask you a, a question here, and I'm just kind sure. of seeing how the the playbook from our politicians go. My next thing is, I think that what they're going to do to divide police unions, whether when they try to silence us, is try to divide us on race. Are 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 you seeing that playbook play out in New York at all? I'm not seeing it play out amongst the rank and file. Um, there's a lot of talk here about, you know, recruitment based on race and, and bringing more minorities into the department. What we do not say is that New York, the NYPD, is probably the most diverse department in the country. Um, you know, Commissioner Kelly deserves all the credit for it. You know, he, he did the recruitment. We brought people in from around the world. And, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder with, you know, other cops that are of, of color, they're all blue. And that's what the public doesn't get. You know, we, we live and die for each other. Um, I'm sure it's the same in Seattle. And I think that we're smart enough to not let that happen. Uh, could there be different methods of policing that can be implemented where, you know, we could see things differently when we go into poor neighborhoods? Absolutely. I, I worked in some of the richest neighborhoods in the city of New York, and I worked in one of the worst violent neighborhoods in the city of New York. And when I got there, I learned a lot. I saw a lot and I realized this is life in a different way. And you change, you change things. You, you realize that there's still good people trying to make it. Um, and I think that cops are smart enough to see that, but it's the policies we're gonna have to be concerned with that can start to divide that. And um, that, that could become a problem over time. I hear you. you know, I think when we talk about all of the, when neither, I don't think any of us three are against police reform when it's well thought out and right. things that need to be reformed are reformed. And I think one area that I think we would probably all agree we can invest in, and even as cops, is to spend more money on the youth, youth programs. You know, and there's some good examples of that with the NYPD. Pat Russo has a NY, uh, New York City kids and boxing program up in the 3-4. They've had a baseball league, the Michael Busick Baseball League. That type of thing as cops, and even, you know, maybe we could get some money to run these programs for kids. That can really make a difference, I think. Bill, to, on that note, though, and I agree with you, because, you know, you, you plant a seed, you grow a beautiful tree, and, you know, we have issues as far as the youth is concerned. And, you know, we also need to be honest and call it the way it is, that we are putting kids through a school system who come out and they can't read and write. And there's a breakdown in family structure. I mean, look at the schools right now that, you know, we have kids in elementary school levels that are still not back at schools. And, you know, the UFT has been a problem for this across the country. And the public, you know, no one wants to touch it because they're big donors to a lot of elected officials. But you got to be honest in the sense that, you know, why are these kids not back in school? And, and what do we do with these children when they get to school? You know, we provide meals. 
we provide activities and then they come out and they go home and they're a latchkey kid. And who do they look up to? The gangbanger in the neighborhood. They see the fast cash and, and who's got the gold and who's got the cars. And they go in that direction. I never really agreed with our community policing policies. I think it's more of doing like a happy dance. What we should be doing is more of those programs that you know involve the gym and we mentor children because police officers are doing that every day, coaching in their own communities and doing stuff. But we miss that boat and no one wants to talk to us to do it. But when you go into the communities and you talk about it, the parents there want you there. You know, there's a misconception that cops are not wanted in poor neighborhoods, minority neighborhoods. We are wanted there. And the people there are demanding that we go there, but the elected officials are not responding to that. I think the elected officials in a way, in a sort of a perverse way, don't want the police to succeed in that area because that'll weaken their power. Oh, I agree with you. I, I think that we keep we keep people on a hook if we can keep them down. They become dependent on you. And you know, kids that are I remember driving out at six, seven precincts and seeing little kids hanging out on a sidewalk at three o'clock in the morning. I'm talking about three or four year olds. Like that's just not the way it's supposed to be. But I get why things happen, but we need a combination of holding the schools accountable because the teachers in the schools, they want to teach. They need parental involvement from the broken families. They need that. You know, we, we see where the dads are. A lot of the dads are in jail and, and there's no male figure in some of the households. Um, cops fill that role just through coaching. I mean, we all played some game where we had a coach or a good teacher that we, we just never forgot. And we coach, I've done it. I've coached all kids' teams. Even when my kids weren't on them, we're there. But our job does not do that. Law enforcement's missing the boat. And this is how we change the future. We change the minds of the young, and we get the families, and we win the hearts. And that's what needs to be done. But uh, I think we just go for the, the quick photo op, you know, dancing in the streets, singing, playing the drums in uniform. And, you know, we let people think that that's who we are. That's not who we are. Yeah, I don't like seeing cops in those dancing videos. <laughs> Wait, what are you guys doing out there as far as... And, and you never were in one of those dancing videos, were you? <laughs> I always remember men and women died wearing that uniform. It's not a clown suit. And and I take offense to it when I see it. I, it's even worse when I see a chief or a commissioner standing there while it's happening. You know, people gave their life up for that suit, that uniform. That uniform means something. And and I, I just, I got a problem with it. A hundred percent. Mike, you know, Mike yeah, where where do we go now? Where are we going now in Seattle? Do you have any optimistic vision of policing in Seattle? What are we gonna do? What what is what's what's in the future for the city of Seattle? You know, I'm an optimist, I'm a positive thinker, at least I try to be. Um, there are some days where I'm just like, what are we doing? But if I look at the average cop. Cops are great people, and I love cops, and I love fighting for them, and I think if we maintain the level of quality in human being that does the job of policing here in Seattle, and we protect them, then there's a chance. But it's going to take our community to get involved to hold our elected officials accountable and to really look at police as being great human beings instead of occupiers or the people that are causing um, the issues in our cities. And it's, it's a false narrative. 
and cops are, are, are driven to serve. And if we continue to have those types of uh, individuals with that mindset, we're going to be okay. Eventually, we'll be, we just got to ride this out, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. But um, we need people like Ed and yourself that continue to speak the truth. And if we, uh, if we continue to hold the line, no pun intended, um, we're going to be all right. You know, when we talked to some of the old timers that were on the NYPD, in fact, we had Randy Jurgensen on our Police Off the Cuff show who wrote the book, The Circle of Six, which was about the murder of uh, Officer Cardillo in the 2-8 precinct. And in 1972, three precincts in New York City had 500 murders just within the confines of three precincts. And 10 New York City cops were assassinated that sure. year. So when you look back at how bad it was and it got better, we can only hope that it's bad now, but it's going to get better. Well, it can only get better when something hits rock bottom because there's no place else to go. But on that, I just got a comment here about cops and kids that um, parents are begging for more cops and kids programs. And in that boxing program, kids travel two hours from the Bronx to go to the gym in Brooklyn. So it goes to show you the success that this program has and yet is not getting the recognition that it deserves. And, and yet parents want it. So, you know, that, that's a good program and good job to Pat for doing it. I think they also got hit pretty hard Ed, by COVID because they've been closed. The gyms were closed down for, uh, you know, the better part of a year, I think. I think they're just getting back in the gym now. And, you know, the kids, not only does Pat Russo train these kids to box, but they have a place to go do their homework. They have a place, to a safe place to hang out. And, you know, I can't say enough about Pat Russo. He, he's, a, he's a superstar. And I'm, the kids in those neighborhoods love him. Think of all the kids he's mentored over the years, Billy. I mean, yeah. he's doing this close to 30 years. Like, how many of these kids have gone on to, you know, job and graduated colleges? Some became cops. Um, you know, one person, you know, although he worked with Dave C. for many years, too. But, you know, his, his two guys that for nearly 30 years have mentored numerous kids and have changed their life and they never got a dime for doing it. This was all volunteer work. And uh, Tommy Dades also, he worked the Staten Island gym for five years. All these guys were um, on the PBA boxing team. Joe Murray, you know, he another PBA, uh, now an attorney, he was on the PBA boxing team. So a lot of these guys did mentor and taught a lot of people and they were the ambassadors for the NYPD as they traveled the world and Fought in other countries, you know. If, if Pat had four kids that were Olympians, four, yeah, right? I mean, that's a lot. He's got one now, I think, that's uh, going to be going to the Olympics. Well, that's a success. We got to promote that. A hundred percent. We're we're at an hour and six minutes. Mike, any final thoughts? Uh, any uh, any things you want to say to in conclusion? Yeah, I think that. Talking amongst unions across the nation is critical for cops and for getting our message out there. Ed, if you remember a couple of years ago, we were at a UCOPS event and we talked about the current state of policing across the nation, the sentiment. And I, you know, I remarked that it's going to take cops to save our nation. That sounds a little arrogant, but I believe in it wholeheartedly because it's the individual that's the police that, um, 
is what's really uh, the remedy to all this political unrest. And it's just political unrest. It's what it is. And um, I'm desperate to find and get all police on the same message because we are a big, big interest group. And if we're united, we can really have be a strong voice that surpasses mainstream media and political talking points. And I think it shows like this where we have our narrative being heard, I think is uh, the start of that monumental shift. Mike, I remember that conversation and, you know, we kind of called back then what we're seeing now. And, you know, one of the things we're doing is this is going to be a series of policing in America. And we are bringing in, you know, voices in law enforcement across the country, particularly a lot of the unions. Um, like you, I love cops. I believe cops are pure-hearted people. We all took an oath. I believe that we truly believe in that oath to uphold the Constitution and to hold that line. And is we're sitting here talking now, there are cops across the country that are doing exactly that. And I hope they all go home safe tonight. But we will win this going forward. We will. And whatever takes place in Seattle, I'm going to leave you with, we have your back here in New York. And I know you always had mine. And I appreciate that. So whatever takes place, uh, we're with you. I know some of the guys across the country are with you, and we all know who they are. But uh, this is a tough time. And for all the viewers, we're going to win this. It's just going to take us some time, some money, and the ability to not give up. But it's worth fighting for. Bill? Yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, I, I agree with you guys, the unity and the strength of the unions to give the other side of the story, not the narrative that the media is throwing out there. They need to hear from the police. And this is a great platform to tell the public what is actually going on. How do cops feel? You know, cops aren't the problem. The problem are a lot of these radical groups. And when the mainstream media calls the riots in New York City peaceful protests when we know 500 cops got injured, uh, I don't know how they're seeing, they're, they're seeing the same thing that I'm seeing. You know, cars being set on fire, you know, uh, buildings, windows being broken. I mean, Seattle, even worse. How they the narrative is put out there that it's peaceful. We got to get the, our own narrative out there to combat the mainstream media because they're not doing a good job in reporting this. What we need is the chiefs and the commissioners that run these jobs to not forget where they come from, to stop selling their souls and to live up to their open office and to defend the men and women that are out there in the streets and to do their job because they're not doing their job. They're, they're rolling over and, and they're just going along with the political wins because they're afraid themselves. And if you lose your job, then you lose your job. It'll happen to the next guy and the next guy, but you have to stand for what's right. And there's not too many people that I see across this country as chiefs that are standing for what's right. And that being said, I wanna thank everyone for watching the show. And we're going to have you back again, Mike. It's always great talking to you. Um, Bill, once again, a great job. Uh, Thanks, thank Ed. you, always, and you'll see us again next week. Have a good This evening. was to the point with Ed Mullins. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Good night.